0: Thank you for listening to the Convergence House of Prayer podcast. Please enjoy this message by Pastor Greg Seamus. Yeah, that goes a long way. Amen. Well, good seeing you this morning. How's everyone doing? You guys doing good? Well, God's up to some amazing things, isn't He? And you're all part of it. What a great time to be alive. I mean, the Lord is moving all over the world, and He's moving here at Convergence House of Prayer. He's moving in the Bay Area, and uh, I just wouldn't be anywhere else at any time. This is uh, this is our time. This is our shift, and uh, God is doing some cool things. So, I just want to go ahead and I just want to jump right into the scriptures this morning. Take your Bibles. Turn to Matthew chapter sixteen. I want to talk to you about this—the uh, rise of the Ecclesia now. I presented this a couple years ago um, and I realized I was talking to Wendy and I was like, well, didn't we start this thing about October of last year? And I went back and I looked on the calendar and it's actually been two years. And so we've been on this thing for two years. And uh, I remember when we actually did this, the, uh, we actually turned it into a series uh, I think last year, but we actually presented it. I can't even remember, to be honest with you, just all all together. And um, and I realized that there are so many new people that are part of convergence. That uh, here we are talking about it, and we don't have a framework or a foundation to build on. And so I, I appreciate you guys. You guys jumping in, wanting to be a part of what uh, what we're doing. But I wanted to bring some clarification around this. Around this whole thing of what God's doing, not just here at Convergence House of Prayer, but what He's doing really around the world. And I do believe the Lord is anointing this, this message, not just because it's it's not because it's coming from me, but this what this part of this message in terms of ecclesia and how he's kind of moving this across denominational lines. And I believe there's a there's a new wineskin forming. I don't know what it actually looks like. But we have to be careful that we don't build the structure to force the new wine in. We have to let the new wine flow and build the structure around it. And so that's what I'm open to. I'm open to whatever the Lord wants. You guys know me. Whatever the Lord's a little dangerous, it's a little, it's a little uh, You know, pioneering, it's a little, you know, you, you're kind of walking on that water sometimes. You're feeling like, okay, what direction do we go? What? So you're really relying on the Holy Spirit. And you got a bunch of people who are willing to jump in and go for it together. And so I just really appreciate every one of you for jumping in and let's doing this thing together as the Holy Spirit is moving. In fact, why don't you go ahead, give someone next to you a high five or something if you can. Don't hit anybody in the head. But just say, you know, we're pioneering this thing together. We're all doing it together. And that is exciting. All right. So... I told, you know, I told the crew that I need an hour for this message today, and to be praying for us. I just want to say in uh, a week, golly, a week from Tuesday, we'll be in the Philippines. Wendy and I will be taking a week going to the Philippines. When we were in Germany, we actually <coughs> got the invitation to go to Germany, 26 nations, 150 leaders, and one, uh, one of the leaders uh, came up to us after we preached this uh, Ecclesia message, and he said, we need that message in the Philippines. Would you please come to the Philippines? And so we prayed about it. We feel like the Lord, Bobby Connor says, well, he says, look at those doors that are open to you and just go through them. You know, so we're in this new day, right? This new season that was prophesied over us and And uh, so after that, and every once in a while, I'll text Bobby and say, would you think this is a good place for us to go? And so we just feel like it's the right time for us to go ahead and head down. So begin to cover us in prayer as we take off a week from Tuesday. I can't believe it's already here, a week from Tuesday. And we'll be at a conference there, um, four or 500 people in downtown Manila. And so I haven't been down to... Uh, never been to the Philippines. How many has been to the Philippines? But I, I bet you there have been Yeah, there's people, see? Um, been to the Philippines, and, uh, and, and so we'll be ministering five times, and I think three times at the conference. We'll do a local church uh, meeting, and then we'll meet with pastors on a, uh, on a Monday. So I don't know how many hours that'll be, and they're, they're, they'll, they'll ask you all the tough questions, you know? And so, um, so we're excited about what the Lord's doing there. All right, so keep us in prayer. Matthew 16, are we there? Say amen. How many of you guys are there digitally? Like you have it on your iPhones, you have it on your, just put your hands, I just want to see. I don't know what the digital device up, just put your hand up. How many of you guys are all with paper? You're still good with paper? Yeah, good, good for you. So I just want to let you guys know the Passion Translation is out now. And um, and so it's the, new, it's the New Testament Psalms, Proverbs, and Song of Solomon, and Bethel is... Uh, Bethel is selling it. The Ford is by Bill, which is, I haven't read it, but Wendy says it's totally amazing. And so you can get it at Bethel's bookstore. Uh, but let me just throw you a hint. Uh, the Genuine Leather is coming in December. So if you guys are, I, there's no, to me, I'll spend money for a Genuine Leather and a Bible. And so I just want to let you know, if you want to wait, you can. Um, but if you can go online, go to Bethel, you can grab it. Okay, enough of that commercial. Um, I just like the Passion Translation. Matthew 16. And this is out of the NIV. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, "Who do men say that I that I the Son of Man am?" And they said, "Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets." And he said to them, "But who do you say I am?" And Simon Peter answered and said, "You are the Christ." the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail. I'm just choosing Hades from now on because Hadas is, anyway. Everyone say Hades. Honey, can you just give me a... There's something about the air conditioner that blows on me or something that I just start my... Anyway, this is a personal little item. Thank you, honey. You're amazing. Isn't she amazing? All right. She is. Thank you. It's kind of weird. I don't know why, but I feel like I'm a 1920s preacher. Where, Jesus! You know, they always... I wasn't raised in the church, you know, but I, I saw the pictures. Like, Jesus! And they have their hanky, you know? And so, anyway, I kind of feel like that, but... <clears throat> I'm not trying to impersonate anybody by doing this, okay? I just, I just need it. All right, where are we at? Verse 18, right? And also I say that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Let's go ahead and begin taking it verse by verse. Let's look at Matthew 16 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. So let me just go ahead and review for you what that region looked like. The region of Caesarea Philippi was the most northern region traveled by Jesus. It was named after Caesar and Philip, and these Caesar and Philip were actually deified gods uh, of the day, and this was about a two-day walk, and it sits at the bottom of Mount Herman. So, Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi with his 12, his millennial 12. Remember, the millennial 12, Jesus' disciples were probably in their late teens and middle 20s. Probably, my, my guess is that they were probably, a lot of them were 21 years and younger. And, the, and, the, uh, and Peter, I think, was over, he was over, uh, he was about 22 or more because he needed money for the temple tax. Temple tax only happened to those who were 22 years old and over. So when Jesus says, hey, go catch some fish, there's going to find two coins in there, and one for you and one for me, and we're going to go ahead and pay the temple tax. So, you know, Peter was not a 60-year-old man that we see in the movies, right, or 55 or whatever. These guys were young, and these guys were definitely under the age of 30 because you were never older than your rabbi. And so we know for sure that there are probably there were 20. That's good. That's a good a little good context. How many millennial? How many people are 30 and under? Put your hands up. 30 and under. That, you, come on. Half of you didn't even raise your hand. All right. I know that's not true. Okay. So Jesus, Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi. And not only does he go to Caesarea Philippi, he goes up on a two-day journey to the gates of Hades. And so uh, the gates of, of Hades was the most pagan center in the Hellenistic world. If you can just, if, how, many, how many people have gone to Israel? Put your hands up. If you've gone to the gates of Hades, it was, the gates of Hades was a place where it was probably the most demonic realm in the, in, in the Hellenistic world at the time of Jesus. Pan was worshipped there. Fourteen other gods were worshipped there. Pan was the half-goat, half-man, lust-filled sex god who dwelt in caves. If you looked closer from the, position, from the vantage point of, of looking at the gates of Hades, you will have seen people worshipping the goat god Pan, Sexual acts with prostitutes and goat offerings, this, uh, this as worship to Pan as well as to other gods. This was, the gates of Hades was the most occultic, deepest, darkest, satanic region in Jesus' day. Caesarea Philippi was despised by, despised by Jews and rabbis. Caesarea Philippi was the opposite of of Holy Jerusalem. It was a place of darkness, debauchery, and occultism. The modern equivalent of Vegas, San Francisco, and New Orleans, which Jesus wants to redeem, all of them, rolled into one. No good Jew would defile himself by traveling to such an accursed place. The city's Hellenized pagans believe that this was the great abyss which makes the entire cave, the gates, the, the gates of Hades, a frightful doorway to the underworld, one of only a handful of portals in the known empire. They call it the Gates of Hades. If a pilgrim were to linger long enough, he would witness perverse rituals involving sexual acts with goats and temple prostitutes in honor of the goat god Pan, lord of shepherds and and music, god of pleasure and fear. On the outer wall, Carved recesses in the cliffs celebrate other deities too, such as Echo and this other god who I can't even pronounce. Possibly also the fertility goddess Nemesis. It is believed that both Baal and the spirits of the dead enter into the underworld through these gates called Hades. Because the cave entrance looks like a yawning mouth on a naked stone. So the people in that day believed that this was the great abyss, which makes the entire cave a frightful doorway to the underworld. Hades was the god of the underworld. His name means ruler of the dead, and he had two brothers, according to legend, Zeus and Poseidon, Poseidon, something, Persimmon. So whatever. Here's the context. Jesus takes him to the deepest, darkest, most occultic region of his day to give us two of the greatest New Testament revelations. Jesus does not choose Jerusalem to release the revelation. He chooses the darkest region to release two of the greatest revelations in the New Testament. The setting is the background of the most important question in the human race. I want you to grab this picture with me. Jesus is, very, Jesus is very strategic. And Jesus is taking his 12 millennial disciples. He goes to Caesarea Philippi. And then he takes those 12 on a two-day journey to the very gates of Hades, the darkest region in, that, in the known world, the most demonic, demonically infested region in that world in, his, in that day, and he's going to release upon them two of the greatest New Testament revelations to these young 20-year-olds in the darkest region of the world. And he asked them the question. He says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Some thought that Jesus was, was, the, was John the Baptist, the one of the greatest, or the greatest Old Testament prophet, a forerunner, risen from the dead. Some thought it was Elijah, who was a prophet of miracles, a type of forerunner of Christ. Some thought it was Jeremiah, Jeremiah was the man of sorrows, the weeping prophet. And just to make sure that we covered everything, they said, "Are oh, one of the prophets." So the greatest question to every, to mankind to this day is, "Who is Jesus to you?" He doesn't ask them that question when they're in Jerusalem. He doesn't ask them the question when he's in Galilee. He doesn't ask them the question in any other place, but the darkest place on earth spiritually. Who do you say that I am? And so he says in verse 15, they go ahead, they give him him like what they think that people are saying, and he says to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The most important question any human will hear and need to answer is actually presented to them in the darkest region on earth. It is the ultimate question. It's the question that we all have to ask before we meet the Lord when we pass from this this place and we go on to the next. And Simon Peter answered and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. With a burst of revelation, Simon Peter responds by calling Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ is his title. Jesus Christ. Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Just so we get that on record. Christ is his title signifying Jesus was sent from God to be both be king and be deliverer. I want you to understand something from Genesis chapter 2 or Genesis chapter 3, I can't remember, when when the Lord says you're, you know, there's going to come. there's going to come one that's going to crush the head of the devil. So for, for generations, for hundreds, thousands of years, they were waiting for this, anticipating this Messiah that would actually come and be their deliverer. It's at the darkest place on earth, the most occultic region, I'm emphasizing this. It's at the gates of Hades that this blast of revelation hits Peter and says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. So what he's saying is, you're our king. You're our deliverer. You are the anointed one. You are our Messiah. The long awaited king and deliverer who was anointed to usher in the kingdom. The ruler. Now remember where there are. All of hell must have shook at the confession of Peter. It's in this very setting that Jesus chooses to allow his disciples to get the, to get the full weight of this revelation. The rest of the journey, of Jesus' journey, now shifts toward Jerusalem and his death. This is the pinnacle of the disciples' revelation of Christ and what he wants them to know. In other words, Jesus doesn't go any further north than the gates of Hades. From that point, from that point of the revelation, the question and the revelation, everything points south to Jerusalem and unto his own death. So Jesus goes the furthest north to the deepest, darkest realm of the devil to ask the question of his disciples about who he is. Some of the things that Jesus does just blows my mind. And Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus blesses Simon Bar-Jonah and let me just throw a context here. Simon's last name was not Jonah or Bar Jonah. That is actually a surname. And a surname is given to somebody because they demonstrate a characteristic. Jonah, if we know in scripture, ran from his commissioned call to save a city. But through his intercession in the deep recesses and darkness of a fish, God rescues him unto saving a city. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is, is throwing out a bit of a revelation of the mandate of a ecclesia. He's saying you are Simon. He's, he, he goes ahead and identifies him as Simon Barjona because he has the characteristics of one who actually will reach and save cities. And we see that actually taking place in Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, and all the way through. They turn the world upside. They turn the world upside down. Jesus, as a type of Jonah, was in the heart of the earth for three days and was resurrecting, having plundered hell and having conquered death, hell, and the grave. We could say amen to that. Matthew chapter 12, 40 and 41. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Ephesians chapter 4, 8 and 9. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. In other words, Jesus is going to make his way to the very cave that pagan gods were worshipped as both king and deliverer to claim the legal right to our lives as the great redeemer. What's the what's the what's the caption? What's the quick summary? Is that is that the very gate? The very cave that stands behind Jesus as he takes his 12, he's prophesying. He's saying, I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to go through those gates, and I am going to actually plunder hell. We know that he went in there for three days plunder hell, take the keys. I'm going to defeat death, hell, and the grave. I'm going to actually forerun something for you. And I'm going to come out of that, that place and call that the resurrection victorious. And guess what I'm going to have in my hand? I'm going to have some keys in my hand. And I'm prophesying to you, Peter, that you are, you are a man unto saving the city, just like Jonah did. So we have to understand that Jesus is pointing to something. He's about to release another revelation. I believe when we receive our true identity as Jesus teaches, Jesus releases to us our true identity. So in verse 18, he says, and I also say to you that you are Peter, which means a pebble or a stone. And on this rock, that word means bedrock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. With the same forceful declaration and revelation, Jesus responds to Peter and reveals to him that he is petros or pebble or rock, one of many. We call them living stones that will actually that will actually become living stones. For it is upon this rock, the bedrock, solid unearthed foundation. Upon that, the revelation of Jesus Christ will be established. And then he goes on to verse 18, which will kind of, that's all background. Are you all there? Yeah. Are you all there? Yeah. Just say amen. Just let me know you're alive, all right? He says, I will build. And the word build is very simple. It means to construct something by combining materials and parts as living stones. Listen, Jesus promised to build something. What is it that he wants to build? It would be imperative for us to know exactly what Jesus says he will build based on the revelation of him being king and deliverer in the face of the gates of Hades, the deepest demonically infested region. The truth is Jesus did not say I will build He will build his church. That's not a correct translation. That's how we even translated the word. He did say he will build his, everyone say it, ecclesia. Now, this one distinction has kept us from truly understanding our mission and our identity and our authority. If we change this word, we've missed our mission. If we missed our mission, we actually miss his intention, his desire, his will. I'll say this. If we, miss our, if we miss our mission, we actually miss what we're designed for. If we miss our mission, we actually move counter to our spiritual DNA. The things he's deposited in us and the things that we're saved unto are your life. Well, what did Jesus said? Say, he did not say I'll build my church. And why is this so important? Because this determines both our functional identity and purpose, our focus and our priority. The word church is the word kyrkon. Everyone say that just for fun. That word did not even exist until the 5th century, about 400 A.D. More like 350. It's an old Anglo-Saxon word. And if you went on your iPhone this morning, don't do it, or your, I said iPhone because I'm an Apple guy, on your smartphone, and you went to any dictionary, and you looked up the word church, you will not find the Greek word ecclesia there at all. You won't even find it as its origin. You'll find a Latin word. Because church and ecclesia are two different words. If you have two different words, you're going to have two different meanings. So I got my Apple computer opened up because I'm an Apple guy we got another amen in the house. We're an altar call. It means a building used for public Christian worship. They came to church with me. That's the actual definition. I don't know if I got it from Webster or, you know, whatever the ones that pop up, but that's it. That's it. So, so the word church is a, pub, is a building used for public worship, Christian worship. It actually, its origin is the word circle, which we get the word circle. And if we look deeper, even into the more German word, it's based on the medieval Greek word, curicon from the Greek word means doma or means the Lord's house. So I want you to get this picture. Jesus takes his young millennial disciples to the darkest region in the world, the most demonically infested region. You have temple prostitutes behind him. You have 14 gods being worshipped there. He's going to release the greatest revelation in the New Testament. And he's, he, he goes ahead and releases who he is. He's ready to release who he is. And he, the second one is that he actually releases what we're supposed to do. What he's building. Friends, Jesus did not say, I will build the Lord's house and the gates of hades will not prevail against it. Because the word has been redefined in many ways the church has ceased being apostolic and has become largely pastoral. This is why so many pastors are frustrated. And you know I had a chance to I had a chance to speak briefly at the Transform Our World uh, conference that they did, I did a little ten-minute window on uh, what was it, a local church. And after I spoke, I had a couple of guys come up to me, pastors, and they and this thing is exploding inside of them, and they're just like, "I don't know how to do this." Why? Because we've been taught something other than what he's teaching. And we have pastors who are trying to spin eight plates at once, trying to keep everybody happy in the body. And they're burning out. They're frustrated. They're leaving ministry. And I'm telling you, the reason why they're doing that is they, they haven't got a hold of the revelation yet. And it's nobody's fault. Well, I'll, I'll cover that in a moment. Are you guys with me so far? So we have created consumers instead of conquerors. We have, we have elevated the pulpit and we've neglected the congregation. We've said that only pastors are the ones who do real ministry and the people are there just to watch. That is the furthest definition of what Jesus is actually saying. So we have to recall from the early days of the church, it was constantly being confronted by persecution, yet growing. Prayer meetings, powerful preaching, city taking was what we see in the book of Acts. So let me just go ahead and set you on a journey just for a moment. In 325 AD, a Roman emperor named Constantine, everyone say, he goes ahead and he legalizes Christianity. Let me... From the time of Jesus, his death and his resurrection, we see in the book of Acts, the pillar of fire dropping them in Acts chapter two, they understood, the disciples understood ecclesia. There was no confusion. If Jesus would have used the word church, Peter would have looked at Jesus and said, what are you talking about? Because that word wasn't introduced until about 400 A.D., But Jesus used the word ecclesia, which we're going to define in a few moments. He goes ahead and he releases this word, and they begin to take cities. So much so, I think the revival crescendoed to a place. In about 325 AD, the Roman emperor Constantine, who was said to become saved, he legalizes Christianity in the Roman Empire. In 380 AD, this other guy named Theos, so you got it, made Christianity the state church and or the national religion. So for over a 1,000 years, only the wealthy and the educated who knew Hebrew, Greek, and Latin had access to the scriptures. In other words, the day, I'll just say this, the day they legalized and nationalized Christianity was the day the ecclesia began to die. Why? Because in about 350, 360, 380, whatever, 400, that's when we begin to see church buildings being built. And in 350 AD, that's when they begin to popularize the word church. It was an old Anglo-Saxon word. So they began to popularize the word church. We began to see these church building rise. They've nationalized and legalized Christianity, made it, made it this national religion. And for a 1,000 years, because it became that kind of a platform, only the wealthy had, only those who, under, who could read, only the wealthy had access to the scriptures. So when they invented the printing press, about 1525, William Tyndale... Goes ahead and begins. How many of you guys understand who William Tyndale is? Kind of a little history lesson. He translates the New Testament from Greek to English. And he was going to do so for the common people. It was called the Tyndale translation. And so when he hit Matthew 16 18, he rightly translates ecclesia as congregation or assembly. It was Christ's assembly, Christ's congregation. And when this was translated and read, then power and control moves away from the Roman Catholic Church and the Church of England and actually begins to bring the ecclesia message back to humanity. We are Christ's congregation. We are Christ's assembly. And so there became a contention that took place and in 1536, when they were trying to shut down, they were trying to have Tyndale change Matthew 1618 to the word church. And Tyndale refused. I love these guys. And because he was refused, because he refused it, in fifteen thirty six, Tyndale was beaten and he was burned to death by a guy named Sir Thomas More. So as soon as Tyndale is burned and he's killed, we have King Henry VIII that rises up. I, don't spend, I just don't have a lot of time to bring this to you except to say he persuades the English Parliament in 1534, the Act of Supremacy. Henry VIII becomes the head of the English church to nullify the Pope's authority. So there's a power struggle in the church. And King Henry wanted to leave his wife and he wanted, it, he wanted there to be an annulment, and the Pope wouldn't give him annulment. So what we're going to do is we're going to start our own church. And so in about 1534, 1535, he becomes the leader of the Church of England to counteract the Roman Catholic Church. Meanwhile, Ecclesia is sitting there in Tyndale's Bible. So under under King Henry, we have the Great Bible, 1535. We have the Bishop's Bible, 1568. Let me just squeeze in something else here as we go on this historic journey here. The Geneva Bible is printed, I don't even know, 1560-something, which is more of a Protestant Bible that came out, which actually I think translates the word properly. We have the Great Reformation taking place in about 1517 under Luther. So A lot is going on in the 1500s. There's a war going on in the 1500s over the right translation of this one word, among other things. So it was about 1604 when King James I became king. I don't know, I've treading on some water here, some shaky ground here. So King James wants to hold power and so he goes into his own translation. And from about 1604 to about 1611, when they actually was published, he goes ahead and he sets, he sets 47 translators in the place, and he gives 15 rules of translation. He gives them these rules. He says, I want you to translate the Bible, but, and I want these 15 things to happen. The third article of that was, and I'll read it to you as it was written, the old ecclesiastical words to be kept, the word church, not be translated congregation. Why? Because power would have went to the people and this was a definite threat to the Church of England. This rule became the de facto translation practice of Matthew sixteen eighteen perpetuating the erroneous use of church in the subsequent translations for the next 500 years. What was the reason? Power and control. Our functional identity was stolen. Our mandate was taken away. Our identity was ripped off. Because the King James Version was so eloquently written, Shakespeare, all these, they, they adopted the, the King James Translation. In fact, we still hang on to it. In fact, I'll have people go to bat with that the King James Translation is the god standard translation, like the Holy One, the Holy Bible, the real Holy Bible, you know, I say that in jest, but, but really it's kind of, I always have fun with people when they talk about the King James Version because, you know, the... There's no Bible out there that, you know, if you take Wither to and thou and all that out, you don't really have a Bible, all right? <laughs> so how do we use the word church? What church do you go to? Why did you leave your church? How was church today? My church is located in Fremont. Where's your church located? We gave to the building fund so that we can build a church. Because church and ecclesia are two different words, they carry two different meanings. And because of this, we have to ask the question, here it is, are we co-laboring with Jesus in building what he said he would build? Is our message... The same as his. So, what really did Jesus say when he said, I will build my ecclesia? What is an ecclesia? That's like, what is it? Well, the word translated. Means ruling legislative congregation or assembly. Everyone say it, ruling legislative congregation. Or you can, yeah, assembly, go ahead, tie that in there, that's fine. Ecclesia is used 115 times in the New Testament. Of these, it is improperly translated church in all but three verses. So if you're in Ephesians and you see the word church, it's ecclesia. If you're in Revelation and you're looking at the the, mess, the seven messages to the churches, the word there is ecclesia. In other words, ecclesia was not isolated to just Matthew chapter sixteen verse eighteen. Paul used it. Peter used it. New Testament writers used the word ecclesia. So they didn't use. They didn't write the word church down. Paul didn't write church. Peter didn't write church. John in Revelation did not write church. He wrote the word ecclesia. Now Jesus could have used any other word in Matthew sixteen eighteen. He could have used bride. He could have used kingdom. He could have used temple. He could have used army. He could have used the family. But Jesus says, upon the revelation of who He is at the gates of Hades, I'm going to build my ecclesia. Now this is a, this is this is mind blowing. There were three main institutions in that day. There was the temple, there was the synagogue, and there was the ecclesia. The temple was religious. The synagogue, you guys hang with me here, was religious. The, ex, the ecclesia was governmental. Jesus could have said, I'm going to build uh, temples. And upon this revelation, I'm going to build temples. I'm going to build, I'm going to build synagogues, which really this is what kind of looks like a synagogue, buildings. But he said, I'm going to use, he's, he actually took a secular word and he made it his own. The Passion Translation Has it right? It says, I give you the name Peter, a stone, and this truth of who I am will be the bedrock foundation on which I will build my church, hyphen, my legislative assembly. Isn't that strange? It wasn't a religious word. Far from it. Every city had an ecclesia. The participants of the ecclesia were male citizens over the age of eighteen. There were six thousand in number. They met thirty to forty times a year, and they were summoned from a whole to legislate. And the functions of the ecclesia were to actively participate in legislation, to declare war, to make peace, to assign troops to campaigns, to negotiate. They negotiated treaties. They made alliances. They elected officials they were they were uh, including mili- military generals they were chief magistrates in the city they banished citizens they made judicial decisions in other words the ecclesia legislated a city in legal cooperation with the senate the ecclesia had the final decisions in all matters affecting the supreme interests of the state as war peace alliances treaties regulation of army and navy finances Oh, man, loans, tributes, duties, prohibition of exports, imports, the introduction of new religious rites and festivals, on and on it goes. The ecclesia had power to legislate. They were given authority to legislate. In other words, the secular ecclesia had expansive authority in determining the affairs of their cities and their territories to adequately manage these affairs the ruling council typically met 3 or 4 times a month ecclesias were used to colonize regions they were apostolic in nature they were not pastoral jesus said this is why it's important to see matthew 16:18 for what it is jesus says I will build my ecclesia. What's he's talking about? He's talking about a kingdom that he brought. It says in Isaiah chapter 9, 6, he says, the government will rest on, I think it's 9, 6, government's going to rest on my shoulders. The prophecy. the government's going to rest on his shoulders. And when he came, he didn't bring a religion. He brought a government. We are to co-labor with the great intercessor and administrate and legislate heaven to earth for justice and glory as a governing ruling through love and service, not to, not to lord it over somebody, through love and service, sons and daughters of God until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of your God. God legally installs another government on planet earth a government that would be responsible and loyal to him above all else. My ecclesia is a threat to every corrupt human government and demonic principality and even how we do church. But if we're so busy building the church, we won't function as an ecclesia. So I, want you to, I just want you to run with me for a moment. You guys are okay? Okay. All right. Matthew 4, 17, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He starts his ministry by introducing a cult. He starts his ministry by asking the people who are listening, you need to change the way you think because I'm going to bring my kingdom. We see in the ministry of Jesus, we see Jesus function as an ecclesia. Now I want you to understand something here for a moment. Peter, James, John, everybody in the New Testament, they understood what Ecclesia was. This is not a new concept to them. So Jesus is legislating while he's on the earth. For three years, signs and wonders and miracles, and it says in 1 John 3, verse 8, that Jesus destroyed the works of darkness. So Dads who were crippled would actually be healed and begin to play with their kids again. We saw things that were made right that were wrong. We see the mind being renewed. We see the life of Jesus. You can't even, the scripture says you can't even, you can't even contain the, the, the amount of miracles that took place. We can't even write them down. There were so many Jesus came as an ecclesia to legislate the government of God on the earth. We call it the kingdom. And then he goes ahead and he commissions us to do the same. But if we're so focused on building the church, we won't understand that we're actually, we actually need to be building the ecclesia. Are you guys okay? I'm really rushing through this. All right, you guys getting it? For some of you, it's review, but it's always good to hear it again. So the ecclesia is the local expression of heaven transforming every fiber of society, bringing God's world into this one. I mean, just look at the book of Acts. If you understand the book of Acts through the grid of an Ekklesia, you'll see, you'll see the book of Acts open up to you in a way that you haven't ever seen before. And then it says in verse 18, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The ecclesia has a target. And the target is from the heart of the king himself. Everything that opposes the kingdom of God must come down. And then he says in verse 19, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Keys of the kingdom of heaven is the revelation, wisdom, and power to take ground. What I said it once and I'll say it again. J- Jesus has the keys and the devil does not. He stands behind gates that he has no keys for. What's the point? The point is, we have to shift our thinking and our paradigm in such a way that we actually come in line and come under what Jesus actually said he wants to build. I am not interested in building something that he's not. Whose fault is it? Well, it has to be, it has, the, the finger has to be pointed to leadership. But for so many years, we've all been kind of, it's, it's been church through osmosis, it's kind of been intentional. But we're talking about, this is a crazy idea. You're talking, we're talking about touching an institution that's been go, doing this for 500 years. And I'm a local church pastor guy. I've been in ministry 32 years. I love the local if I I can use the phrase here. I love the local church. But you guys we measure our success by attendance. The Ecclesia measures their success by influence. We have been so when we talk about when I go to a conference or I go to some place you know council meeting or whatever they say, hey, man, Greg, how you doing? How big's the church? Because that's how—that's our measurement. Listen, Jesus did not wear the, the crown of thorns on his head and take the 39 lashes to see how many people we can get into our buildings. That's not the measure. But we've made it the measure because of how we understood the scripture. So we don't. We, though we understand that we're, we are the church, we don't understand what that means. So what does that mean? That means that I'm on the same level as you. That's what it means. What that means is that I have an anointing and a role, a five-fold gift that I operate in, but you're just as much a minister as I am. That actually is a little scary for those that are actually sitting in the chair, and it's both scary and empowering. It's scary in the sense of, oh, I need to do something. But what we do is we have the church in survival mode. And so people are coming in, and they can barely make it through the week, and you feel like you have to give them hope on Sunday. And then they barely make it through the week, and they haven't given hope on Sunday. And we tell them you got to come to church so you can be empowered to have, now I understand the value of a gathering. But we haven't, we're not raising up people who can actually transform cities. We're not empowering people who actually have gifts and anointings that are sitting. You guys have way more anointing than me. You guys could have said amen there. I wouldn't have, would have felt bad at all. Why? Why don't? Why don't? Why do people in the chair? If I if I'm in a marketplace conference and I have to I have to give value as a pastor to marketplace people because they don't think that their ministry counts? Where did that come from? You're just much a minister. I'm on a different platform. I'm on a different. I'm on a different. I'm on different ground. But your ministry is is. You know, at at Google or Facebook or Apple or wherever it is, the construction site, wherever it is, that's where you're carrying the anointing. That's how you transform your area, your world. Why? Because Jesus is calling us his ecclesia. It's governmental. It's not religious. Let's just throw off religion right now. Just take it like this and just throw it off. That sets us on a journey, doesn't it? Because it begs the question, how do we do this? How do we live as the ecclesia? Well, they gathered. The ecclesia gathered. So this is not a church meeting. This is an ecclesia gathering. This is a place where we legislate. This is a place where you're equipped. You're equipped unto something beyond the walls of the building. This is where we say, yeah, get intimate with God. Never lose the first commandment reality as sons and daughters of the living God, but run into and roll with the mandate. He has given you access to keys. And he says, I want you to apprehend those keys. I think there's millions of keys. Apprehend those keys, and I want you to actually go through gates instead of looking at them. I want you to go through gates, plunder hell, populate heaven, don't curse the gate. Would you please just go through it? Would you just go ahead and be the light of the world? Can you just begin to read the Gospels with an ecclesia paradigm in your head and understand that Jesus is moving in power and he's destroying the gates that the enemy had in line for him when he was on the earth? It's a shift. But listen, I'm going to, you guys okay? (laughs) All right. I know I'm down on the floor. I don't know if they can even put the lights on here, but I think I'm going to stay down here. I'm almost done, see? And even though it's familiar for a lot of us in this house, I'm saying that I wrestle with this Ecclesia thing daily. I mean, I am so churched that I'm I'm having to unravel church, and I want to say that I could, I totally honor the church. I've been in ministry for, like I said, thirty two years, so that counts. <laughs> I honor pastors. I honor I honor churches. I honor, but I'm telling you, there's something more. People are done. All this is a, this is a, ooh, this is probably a dangerous phrase. People are done with church. They're done. People are saying, is this all there is? Is this all there is? I'm going to spend the rest 50 years of my life going to church. And I think I honestly feel, you guys, that is really the heart cry. Even though they won't vocalize it, they don't know what to, they don't know how to vocalize it. We have young people, we have young adults. We have, you know, they're bored with church. Listen, they're bored with church because that's not what Jesus wanted to build to begin with. That's why people say this is why this is growing on me too. Just give me five more minutes. Jesus, yes. Church, no. Now, I do feel like that is wrong. But I do understand maybe the platform where it's coming from. You can't say yes to the head and say no to his body. can't. When you get Jesus, you get the whole family. <laughs> right? And the body, the family, we sharpen each other. So even when you're hurt, that could be a, that could be a point of sharpening you. But when we come into our services, even this shifts everything. The Holy Spirit's just taking me on this crazy ecclesia journey. And I catch myself, I can't tell you how many times I catch myself, that's churchy, that's churchy. That's not ecclesia, that's churchy. I mean, it's almost daily. Even how I measure things. Even today, I'm looking over the crowd. Now, there's a lot of people here. Oh, well, where's that person? Where? I mean, that's a father heart, right? That's a pastoral heart. But we measure like, what was a good service? Well, we had 300 people in the service today. Now, that was a great service. I mean, it could be just as boring and spiritless as, you know, you can have a uh, confession time because you're family, right? You can have a church with little prayer. I mean, you can know how to build a church. And we have classes. We have church growth books, Breaking the 200 Barrier, Breaking the 400 Barrier, Breaking the 800 Barrier, Breaking the 1200 Barrier, you know, Be a Mega Church, you know, all these things that we have books for. But you could, you could actually, you can actually build the church with little prayer. Just, you just got to know the right techniques. You understand the spirit of what I'm saying. But you can't be an ecclesia without little prayer. Because ecclesia is about breaking down, going through the gates of Hades and tearing up the devil, right? And destroying his works. You can't learn deliverance in a book without the presence. You'll get run out like the sons of Sceva did. Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Ooh, that's scary right there. I mean, I don't know. I don't know who I am. I just would have took off, you know. And they tried, right? So we're ministering to these. This is what's interesting, guys. We're ministering to this this simple message in Germany, and we have all these people that are just like, oh, oh my gosh, what is this? And I'm careful not to. What I tell people is that we have to inject the local church with ecclesia DNA and let everything else fall off. So we embrace the gathering, we embrace fellowship, we embrace community, we embrace small groups. We embrace these things, but we embrace them with a DNA of an ecclesia. Well, what does that look like? I don't know yet. I just know that in Acts 2, they, t- they changed tables into pulpits. The increase of revival didn't happen in the temple. It happened in homes. And homes were places where they, they slept and they did business. So Jesus probably lived with his dad, Joseph, and he actually, they ran their company from their house. We're kind of getting back to that now with the computer, right? I mean, anyway, people get up at, you know, 10 o'clock and they just, you know, lounge around, get to the computer, go to work, right? So I don't know what this, I don't know what this looks like except to say, I know what Jesus is saying. And when we're in, we're in Germany. This is, what we're, this is what we're seeing. And then when we go to Philadelphia, this is what we're seeing. And we're kind of testing it out. I'm not knocking on any doors. I'm not calling anybody. Hey, man, like, let me come preach this message, bro. I'm not doing any of that. We're just trying to fulfill his mandate, not my mandate. And so then we we hear things like, "You need to bring this to the Philippines." Like this, you need to bring this to the Philippines. But I'm not the only one who's moving in the messaging. Do you understand what I'm saying? I want you to get a bigger picture. So Ed Silvoso writes a whole book on Ecclesia before I even knew he was writing it. It's called Ecclesia: City Transformation. This is the this is the key ingredient. This is the leaven in the dough. This is what this is what the body of Christ needs. What I'm trying what am I trying to say? we've lost our identity and now we're regaining it yes we're sons and daughters but our identity is an ecclesia as sons and daughters we don't and here's been my message i've been pounding a little bit we don't we don't become the ecclesia by doing we are the ecclesia so we do it comes out of a place of our identity. And so what happens is it's, it's, it's what's been lost that's been reclaimed and captured. And so what I'm afraid of is, is our clergy, our pastors, are going to say, if I just do more city outreach, if I, just, if I just meet with the mayor, I'm the ecclesia. If I'm just, no, 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 no. You are the ecclesia, and out of your identity, you move out in the ministry. So, as an ecclesia, we pray. As an ecclesia, we tear down strongholds. As an ecclesia, we reach into dark places and we pull people out. Why? Because that's our mandate. Our mandate, oh man, Jesus, help me with this one. Oh Lord. Our mandate was never to do church. Our mandate was to be the ecclesia of God. Our mandate, oh, Lord God. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Oh, man. I'll just say this. I'm going to run away from that bunny trail for a moment. I will say this because it's getting late, very late. Extremely late. And I understand why the Lord did not give us this revelation until like two or three years ago. A grown revelation. I mean, Dutch Sheets is preaching this. I'm telling you guys, you're going to start seeing this more and more, this word come up more and more. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) And I'm saying that because I want you guys to understand that God is validating it. Across denominational lines. And he's, he's given it to people that have a broader, much wider platform. You know, if you know what I'm saying, platform in a good sense, not a bad sense, but I'm just saying visibility is probably a better word. And you'll see this more and more begin to unfold. It's what he's doing right now, he's bringing it all together. And I, this is part of God raising up the apostolic. And if you're part of a, if you are part of an apostolic house, you are apostolic, and so that's your covering is apostolic, and that's the way it's always been. And the apostle is the leader of a boat, a a fleet of ships that actually go into new territories, and they bring their kingdom in the new territories. So you've all been drafted. We all have an assignment. And here's what's so cool about it. We aren't designed to do church. We bear it. We have questions. When will I ever find the right church? You know why? Because we're not supposed to be doing church. We're supposed to be The Ecclesia of God. That's why he says, I'm going to build mine. It's my Ecclesia. My kingdom's not visible, it's invisible. You guys catching my heart right now. Please don't email and say, PG hates the church. It's not it at all. That is not it at all. I want to bring fulfillment to what he's doing. To the church. I want the full measure of what he paid for. I want the full measure of his sacrifice. That's what I long for. And I'm a little older than some of you. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm going down swinging. And, and I, I, I need a group of people who will swing with me. Really. And I think that you guys are... If you guys hung out here for the last year and a half, two years, then I think you're swinging with me. And we're not... She's all, 20 years. I've been with this 20 years. I I appreciate you, Yolanda. I'm sitting in my office and there goes Yolanda down the street, 40 miles an hour. Hair, you know, hat almost blowing off when she's Rolling down there, she's just got her turbo engine on her wheelchair. Does that does that help you? Kind of get you kinda get I want you guys to resonate with this. What was I gonna say? I'll just have you guys stand up right now. Let's just do that because it's late and now I can I can carry on. Well let me conclude with this. Um, You know, um, you ever been summoned before? Who's done jury duty? That's called a summons. And we've been summoned by the king to be the ecclesia. And I want to say something. I want you, here's what I'd love for you guys to do. Do your own research. Do your own study. Go deep in the word. Read books. I'm telling you, it's all there. In other words, don't just take my word for it, which I hope I'm right. I believe I am. But you do your own research. You have the same tools. You have access to things now that you didn't have access to things 30 years ago. Do your own research. Study it but we've been summoned. We've been summoned by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We've been called into something that is part of your DNA. This is not something that's supposed to be uncomfortable. This is actually something that would actually complete you. It brings you to a place where you, you, this is what you're wired for. This is what you're born for. This is it right here. This is it. It's what the Spirit of God is doing. It's Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 30,000, what is that, 25, 30,000 saved in a year and a half. This is what we're born for. Startles me when 95% of, the, of believers have never led someone to the Lord. That's a church paradigm that needs to be broken. I want all of us to lead people to Jesus. All of us to lay hands on the sick and they'll be made whole. All of us to share our faith. All of us to see the kingdoms of this world come under the lordship of Jesus. Shaking every mountain, every governmental mountain, every educational mountain, every, every family mountain, every sphere of influence that actually bends its knee to the lordship of Jesus. That's what I'm born for, aren't you? That's what I'm born for. Listen, I'm not born I'm not born to do church as we've defined it. I just get frustrated. So that's what I'm believing for. I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm, I'm involved with Ed Silvoso because he's doing what I'm born for. Transformation, being the ecclesia of God. And we're going to find more and more people who are going to be so inclined, if I can use the word, who has, who have the paradigm running with it. Father, I just pray as we leave today, I just release the ecclesy anointing over every person in this room. Father, I pray that you would take us into deeper waters. Lord God, I pray that our cities would be literally transformed. God, that we just don't talk about transformation We don't, you know, hope the pastor does it. Those days are over. And I just empower every person in the chair, every person that's standing in this room to be ministers of the gospel with a full level of anointing, equipped by the Holy Spirit to bring people to Jesus and to see signs and wonders cover the the earth. And Lord, for our region, for the Bay Area, for the Silicon Valley, God, I pray that you would raise up more and more apostolic men and women who carry the mantle. God, I pray that voices would arise to bring us into our place of our true identity, of who we're, what we're supposed to do, what you've called us to. And God, may we do it with grace. May we do it in love. May we serve people well. May we serve our cities well. I thank you for it. Amen. <clears throat> well, that's it for me. But it's not it for the Lord. Right? Turn to your neighbor and say, You are the ecclesia of God. Just say it. Just turn to your neighbor and say, You are the ecclesia of God. You are Christ's ecclesia. You are. You are, you are, you are. And you can, and you can also tell them this. You are going to turn your world upside down. Go ahead. You're going to turn your world upside down for Jesus. Turn your world upside down for Jesus. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more messages like this, please subscribe and thank you for listening.